chair staff is ready when you are. Great. Um, good evening. Welcome to the Monday, October 24th, 2022 Sacramento Ethics Commission meeting. The meeting is now called to order at 5.32 p.m. Will the clerk please call the roll? Commissioner Adams? Present. Commissioner Gomez? Here. Commissioner Velasquez? Present. Vice Chair Ng? Here. And Chair Underwood? Here. Good, we've got everyone here. This meeting is virtual via Zoom. For members of the public who wish to join, please refer to the agenda for the Zoom link. Once you have joined the meeting and wish to speak, raise your hand to provide public comment um, when it's public comment speaking period for your desired item. Uh, you will have two minutes to speak once you are called on, unless we decide to give you more time because of various considerations. All right, our first business today is approval of the consent calendar. The consent calendar consists of the meeting minutes, the complaint log, and the follow-up log. And I do see that um, we have received a written comment on the complaint log. So I'm not sure what to do with that exactly. It's from John Doe. Um, Madam Clerk, do you have any suggestions? Um, so I believe the content of the comment was that their complaint was not on the log, and that's accurate. I received an additional complaint after the posting of our agenda, um, which will be on your next log. Okay, great. Um, and. Are there any members of the public who are wishing to speak on the consent calendar? Chair, I show no hands raised to make public comment on this item. Okay. Um, are there any commissioners who wish to speak on the consent calendar? Looks like no. Um, is there a motion um, to approve the consent calendar? This is Commissioner Ng, I motion. Okay, and do we have a second? I'll second. Great. Will the clerk please call the roll for the vote? Thank you, Commissioner Adams? Yes. Commissioner Gomez? Yes. Commissioner Velasquez? Yes. Vice Chair Ng? Yes. And Chair Underwood? Yes. The motion passes. All right, we'll now proceed to the discussion calendar. Item four is the lobbyist registration and reporting code ad hoc committee update. Um, is there a committee presentation? Yeah, so um, Commissioner Ng and I thought we could just kick it off and remind folks of kind of like what we did last time and where we are today. Um, so just a reminder, you know, we formed an ad hoc group um, with members of the community who have some expertise in this area and uh, produced a set of recommendations. 
And we went over those recommendations at the last meeting. And these recommendations kind of drive back to the, the role of why the city adopted the lobbying ordinance in 2003 to provide more transparency on how interest groups attempt to influence policy development in the city of Sacramento. Um, and so after the discussion uh, that happened at the last meeting, Commissioner Velasquez um, indicated interest in kind of learning a little bit more about lobbying, um, getting some more background. And then um, Commissioner Adams also asked for a revision of our recommendations with some um, more context in different areas. And so um, we're back <laughs> uh, to, to kind of follow up on a lot of that. Um, and we'll also um, uh, pass it over to a member of our uh, ad hoc committee, Nick Heidorn, to talk a little bit more about that. But before that, Commissioner Ng, is there anything you wanted to add to context setting? No, uh, maybe I just should add that this is truly an experience. You know, and thank you, really thank you for the commission to, to you know, give us such an important appointment and we learn quite a bit from here. So um, we'll let uh, Nicholas to start, you know, his presentation. Great, thank you, uh, Commissioners Ng and Commissioners Gomez. I'm gonna share my screen and do a PowerPoint. Let me know, do you guys see my PowerPoint? Yes. Great. Okay, thank you. So uh, for the benefit of the public, as well as kind of a refresher of what we're proposing and to provide a little bit more context, we're gonna kind of go over what current law is as well as the proposal. Uh, it's in shorter form than the last presentation. So for members of the public who want even more information, recommend you go back to the last uh, meeting and, and watch that presentation. But in a more abbreviated form, we're gonna go through what current law is and what the proposed changes are. So just as, as kind of place setting, uh, Sacramento's had a lobbying ordinance for I believe about 30 years. And the question is, why do we regulate lobbying? There are a number of reasons. The first is obviously transparency. Uh, the lobbying ordinance declares that the public has a right to know what type of lobbying is going on in the city. And that helps the public to understand mm -hmm. What are the sources of influence within the city and, and what can be important contributors to policy making? And that transparency also contributes to accountability when the public is able to see uh, what is going on with lobbying and what the results are uh, for good or for bad. That can also have an important role in, in creating accountability, understanding what the source of information can be and how it's used. And finally, those two uh, combined transparency and accountability can be really important for preventing corruption or its appearance and also helping the public have trust in our system because they can see it's not the world of the uh, smoke-filled back rooms for how lobbying is done. In Sacramento, we value having it out in the open. So those are kind of the three values that go into, into lobbying. And what you're gonna see in this proposal is not an attempt to kind of blow up or revolutionize the, the lobbying ordinance, but really to update it. And so what we said at the last meeting is true uh, here too. The lobbying ordinance when it was passed 30 years ago was pretty cutting edge, but uh, peer jurisdictions have since passed this by. And so the goal is to update the ordinance to be more in keeping with other peer cities that have that regulate lobbying. So there are five things that the uh, proposed changes would do, and I'm gonna go over for each one what current law is and what the change would be. The first issue is who must register to lobby. This is really a threshold question because all of the reporting is triggered by 
someone who has to register as a lobbyist. And so you need a threshold for determining that. Under the current rules, if you're an in-house lobbyist, meaning if you're employed by an employer who has you do lobbying, the threshold is you have to do 100 hours of lobbying before you have to register as a lobbyist. Uh, if you're a contract lobbyist, meaning like a company has hired someone to lobby on their behalf, as opposed to having their own employees do it, the threshold is $3,200 in a quarter. So if you have a contract more than $3,200, uh, the firm that's receiving that contract would then have to register as a lobbyist employee. The problem with these thresholds is that they're really high, particularly high compared to other cities. And so that means there's a lot of activity that uh, should probably be considered lobbying, or which is lobbying, uh, but doesn't meet the threshold, goes unreported. And so the public, the media, doesn't have an ability to understand that that lobbying is going on. And we lose some of the transparency and accountability benefits that were talked about previously. To put a finer point on it, if you look at in-house lobbying, 100 hours a quarter uh, means you've devoted two and a half weeks where every minute of those two and a half weeks is devoted to nothing but lobbying, which is an incredibly high threshold to actually meet. So the proposed rule really looks to what other cities have done and says, let's reduce in-house lobbying threshold to 15 hours a quarter. Um, that's uh, still higher than jurisdictions like San Jose and other jurisdictions like San Francisco and Oakland do it based on a certain number of contacts, which ends up being much stricter than the hourly proposal that we have. The other uh, thing is to reduce the contract amount from 3,200 to 1,500. Uh, that's about in the middle of some of the peer jurisdictions that we looked at, but it's still higher than, for example, Oakland, San Francisco, and Berkeley that have a contract threshold of $1,000 or less to trigger lobbying registration. Uh, 1500 just felt like an amount that to the general public would feel like a substantial amount of money to get someone to represent your interests. So it felt like a good dividing line. When you're thinking about lobbying thresholds, you want to kind of distinguish between what uh, you know a run-of-the-mill company might do and what someone who's really expending significant resources to influence City Hall would do. And 1500 felt like an appropriate amount. Once you have someone who's required to register as lobbyists, then the reporting requirements kick in. And the question would be what needs to be reported. So under the current rules, uh, you have to disclose the lobbying firm that's hired has to disclose who owns the firm, if it's a corporation, uh, who are the clients of the firm, who are the people paying it to lobby, what are the items that it's lobbying on, which as we'll see is often just a very general description of their general interest. Um, and then the one thing relating to kind of what activity uh, the lobbying firm is doing is campaign contributions. If the lobbying firm gives contributions or if a client gives a contribution, but at the behest of the lobbying firm, meaning if the lobbying firm goes to its client, so it goes to company ABC that hired them to lobby and says, company ABC, I want you to make a campaign donation. In that situation, they would have to also report their, their clients contribution. But if company ABC gives a contribution and the lobbyist didn't ask them to, they, they don't have to report it. So those are the main items of reporting that we have currently. Now the, the problem, potential problem with this, or at least something that could be improved with this, is it means that a significant amount of lobbying activity and spending is simply not being reported at all, especially when you compare it, for example, what the state requires reporting. So a lot of the context of lobbying, which is really what is often most useful to the public uh, is getting lost. So before we go into our proposals, let me show you a little bit what those forms look like uh, so you can get a sense of what these forms look like where you or a member of the public to pull it up. So 
these reports are filed quarterly, so you indicate the quarter that you're filing for. You'll have the name of the lobbying firm, the name of the person doing the filing, and their contact information. Uh, you'll see there the, the black rectangle at the bottom is where this particular firm has listed all the owners. Now, I blacked this out because I didn't want to call out any particular uh, lobbying client, but none of this is redacted if you were to actually go and look up the, uh, the forms. I just want to show this generally so I didn't want any particular person to feel like I was singling them out. And so this is the actual report that the lobbying firm would give of one of their clients. And so this tells you the name of the client, contact information for the client, and then you'll see that uh, second to last uh, item, items of legislative or administrative action that the lobbyist is seeking to influence on behalf of the client. In this case, this client said land use matters. So it can be a little general. Sometimes they may actually indicate uh, you know, proposed resolution based on like an item number on an agenda. But often looking at these, it's it's pretty general or maybe they'll identify it with a, an address, for example. Then the last bit that's uh, that I blacked out just has the name of the individual lobbyists who work for the lobbying firm. And finally, the, the only kind of substantive thing of what the, the firm is trying to, what a firm may be doing to try and uh, curry favor with an elected official is campaign contributions. So if the, again, if the lobbying firm gives a contribution or if one of their clients at the behest of the lobbying firm gives a contribution, that'll be reported on the form as well. So going back to, to the proposal, um, we think what this is missing is uh, a lot of information about kind of the magnitude of lobbying. So what you don't get from these reports, for example, is someone who spends $3,200 lobbying uh, is has essentially the same form as someone who spends $150,000 lobbying. Obviously, to the public, that's there's a big difference in the amount of firepower you're bringing to bear if you're only spending a few grand versus tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so understanding the amount of the contract uh, is traditionally disclosed, and it should be disclosed because it gives that important context. The other thing that should be disclosed is different ways that lobbying firms may uh, provide benefits to elected officials in an effort to be friendly to them and hopefully uh, uh, seem like a, a good partner, one might say. But often these things can, to the public, uh, create fear that maybe someone is getting too close to an elected official, that they're trying to go a little bit beyond just uh, trying to curry favor. And so examples of things that are traditionally disclosed on campaign on these lobbying forms would be any gifts that a lobbying firm or a client gives to an elected official should be disclosed. Campaign contributions, as we talked about, are currently disclosed, but only if they're at the behest of the lobbying firm. And the reason why I keep stressing that is that's really an oral conversation. If the lobbyist tells the client, hey, it'd be great if you gave that campaign contribution, uh, that'd be pretty hard to prove and ever know. So it really should just be all campaign contributions, regardless of how the contribution came about. Uh, and that's what state law does. The last one, which is not something that state law does, but we thought was a good idea, is behested payments should also be reported on these forms. Uh, a behested payment is when an elected official asks a company, for example, to donate money to a nonprofit. Um, and so the donation doesn't go in any way to the elected official, but it was made at the behest of the elected official. And current state law requires local officials to report that. But what these lobbying reports are trying to do is bring all that information of ways that uh, a lobbying client has interacted with an elected official or sought to give a benefit to an elected official, put that in one place. So we think behest of payments should be reported on there as well. 
moving to the next segment, we look at how do you find the reports? And so currently, if you go to the city's website on lobbying, uh, that link there, you will find at the very bottom of that page, something that says the public portal. And if you click on that, you'll find all the lobbying reports. And I do wanna give a lot of credit to the city clerk here. If you'd gone back, I think only six months to a year ago, uh, I think these reports were only in the general data portal where the city stores all its data, even not relating to lobbying, and they're very difficult to find. So this is much easier because it's nothing but lobbying reports. Um, but to illustrate a few of the things that we'll talk about next, if you wanna find a report, you've got search by filer name in the top. That's the name of the lobbying firm. Uh, it's not the name of the, the client, meaning if you knew that company ABC is doing lobbying, you can't enter company ABC in there. You would have to have known who company ABC hired, uh, so firm XYZ to then find information about company ABC. Um, and then you can also sort by dates and you can see below uh, this is what the filings look like, and you can click on view to see what those filings look like. And we looked at those earlier. So in terms of the, the areas that we think this could be improved, if there's an opportunity to refine the database in the future, um, would just be allowing more ways to search and find people. So minimum, we think it'd be useful to be able to search by the person who's hired the lobbying firm, so the client looking at the items lobbied on and the amount of spending. So if there's a way to filter, like who are the people doing a lot of spending, it would really make it a lot more useful to the public as well as the media and help to form that transparency and accountability role. Last thing is something uh, within the city clerk's power and, and could be considered that public portal is super useful, but it's kind of buried at the bottom of the lobbying page. And so if there are more ways that we could increase the prominence of that link, so more people are aware that this information is available uh, that'd be good because lobbying disclosure is only useful if people know the information is out there. All right, the, the last real substantive item is restrictions on lobbying activities. Um, under current law, the city's ordinance only has a few restrictions on lobbyists, and it says you can't deceive elected officials, you can't create fake people for public comment, and you can't uh, put an elected official under your obligation. Um, there's also some state laws that apply. The main one is state law generally says you can't give a gift of more than $520 uh, to any local official. That's not at all related to lobbying. That's just a general rule as to any gift givers. Uh, the potential problem with this is a lot of other local ordinances and state law go further to try and prevent any appearance that lobbying firms or lobbyists have actually put elected officials uh, under either they're not really under their obligation, but that if they've curried uh, the favor of an elected official or maybe uh, create the appearance of undue influence. And so they try and create stronger barriers to gifts and campaign donations just from the lobbyists and the lobbying firms, not the companies hiring them, but the people who do the day-to-day -day talking to elected officials, because really what lobbyists should be selling is their ability to make persuasive arguments, provide good information that leads to good decision-making. They shouldn't be selling the fact that they've got really good access because they give campaign contributions. And so the proposed change here is just to follow what state law does for state lobbying. And state law says lobbyists should be limited to gifts of $10 a month. Worth noting some other local governments go further like San Francisco just bans all lobbyist gifts. And in terms of campaign contributions, state law prohibits state lobbyists from giving campaign contributions to state elected officials. And that felt like a good rule uh, for local as well. The last item uh, for the proposal to wrap it up is just looking at the Ethics Commission's role. Under current law, the Ethics Commission, this body is supposed to enforce the lobbying ordinance. It's expressly enumerated in your charge. 
But there's a separate provision that says the Ethics Commission can only impose penalties on certain people, and it lists a long list of people, but it doesn't include lobbyists, lobbyist employers, lobbying firms. So there's potentially some ambiguity as to whether you can actually enforce this ordinance against the only person it could be enforced against. So here, this is just clarifying that your authority would extend to them. Uh, in terms of next steps, uh, what this ad hoc committee has proposed, you've got the letter in your packet. The ad hoc committee recommends that this body adopt those recommendations that I just laid out and send the attached letter to the city council. And the request of the city council is highlighted there, but essentially it asks that the city council refer the proposal to law and legislation committee uh, to draft an ordinance, bring it back to the council, hopefully for adoption. Uh, so with that, uh, I'll leave it open to questions and turn it over to Commissioner Ng and Gomez to finish out any remainder of the presentation. Thank you. Thanks, Nick. Um, yeah. Any questions, folks? Well, no. I guess we have to ask whether there are any members of the public who want to speak on this item or ask questions. Sure, I show no hands raised to make public comment on this item. Okay. So then are there any commissioners who have any questions or comments? That was a great presentation, by the way. Thank you, Nicholas. Thank you. So do um, any of the commissioners have questions on the, on the recommended oh. letter? Commissioner Velasquez. Okay, sorry, I'm having technical issues. Um, yes, yeah, so I think my questions are for Commissioner Ng and Commissioner Gomez. Um, are there are there things we can add to our recommendation? There were uh, a couple of areas that I'd like to um, sort of tighten the loose ends and then make other areas broader is are we having a discussion on um what we're proposing um what language we're proposing or what the letter is going to say is that later or is it based on the letter that we've already seen so the ad hoc committee uh drafted a letter and that letter we reviewed at the last meeting and then Commissioner um, Adams asked us to um, uh, add some contextual language in different sections. So in between the last meeting and this meeting, we took that feedback and revised the letter. Okay. And then we sent it back out to y'all. And so, um, and was included in, in the agenda packet. And so if there's additional sort of comments about the letter, this would be the time to provide those comments so we can take those in. My my hope would be that if we if you feel good about the spirit of the letter, like that we're not sort of uh, uh, splicing too many letters on it, like if, if you, you know, you know what I mean? But if there's big things that you feel like we're not getting definitely want to uh, incorporate folks's feedback. Okay. Um, so yeah, there's a few things, but I leave it up to you. It's not anything very specific. I would just, in some of the, the verbiage, um, we said, um, you know, as far as the amount, the reporting requirements for if they get paid this amount or that amount, I'd be um, interested in starting that, um, that paid amount even 
less than what it already says. I know some of the, the counties had said a thousand, some said 2,500, but I would be interested in even um, lowering that as far as report, reporting requirements. But I leave that up to you guys as well. I, again, I'm not um, vastly knowledgeable on lobbying. Um, I don't know if, if we bring it down too low, then it makes more of a nuisance than anything else. Um, but in just for the sake of transparency, um, the other is can I comment on that one really quick before yeah. you go to the next one? Okay, so just so you have a sense of our discussion during the ad hoc committee. So um, we discussed each of those sort of amounts and came to amounts that felt like um, it meets the spirit of what we're trying to do, but also feels like it has the, the largest likelihood of being able to move forward within the city council. Okay, got it. So do you, it's just in a reasonable kind of a mark that you made. Okay. Um, the other is we talk about um reporting amounts paid gifts contributions um but it is is it possible to add um that any and all forms of gifts and contributions i i feel like um i'd hate there for there to be a loophole or a misunderstanding that you know we weren't specific enough um including if by contributions uh, maybe it's not a campaign directly related to what the lobby, the lobbyist is being paid to do, but maybe something else that they're working on. Um, you know, those sort of close those other loopholes and just thinking about how, you know, I know other people think. Um, so, you know, if you're a lobbyist and I'm paying you and there's, you know, hey, you know what, I'm working on this other thing, doesn't have anything mm -hmm. to do with you. Cool if you, you know, um, yeah. We can add something like that again i'm not knowledgeable if that's something we could do that would be great so um, let's let's think about that language and nick i'm not sure if you have any thoughts on this because mm -hmm. that is like a, a kind of a language piece around uh, making sure that that section sort of like encompasses the different types of benefits i guess that that folks could get I would think it's probably pretty consistent with what the state regulations are for lobbying and that you know, but what the way you've got it now is is pretty clear, but maybe Nick, you can address that. Maybe we can hear from uh, Commissioner Adams. What's your thought? Because you're pretty well into this too. And I, I would be open to hear what Nick have to say, but from my understanding, you know, sort of this would cover any type of quid pro quos that would come out of it. So even if it isn't something directly related, it would still be a benefit. So it would be covered. But, you know, I will, uh, as others, um, defer to Nick if he wants to comment on that. Yeah. yeah. Those are usually the main categories. Um, so I, I think those are probably good. What you might consider is in some cases the state fair political practices commission uh for lobbying i'm pretty sure the the state code says that the commission can adopt other regulations to further transparency uh, relating to lobbying filings in these general areas so it could be that maybe uh, you could adopt some kind of catch-all language that with regulations you guys can specify or or fine-tune these requirements but that was the only thing that immediately came came to mind through that comment. 
I would think as, as Commissioner Gomez said about the other issue that the way it is now is probably the best way to present it to the city council. Cause remember, we're not the final say on this. We're just presenting it to the council and saying, this is what we think you should do. And I, th I think it's in a good place where it is right now for doing that. And that we don't want to start adding all kinds of little additional details, then they're going to, you know, maybe have trouble with. Do they ever, uh, they, do they ever, do they just shoot things down or do they shoot, do, do they, do they come back with revisions? Uh, maybe Mindy can answer that, right? <laughs> so. So the process, any new ordinance of the city goes through our law and legislation committee. So they would mm -hmm. um, weigh in on it. They might make some modifications and they could say, no, thank you. Um, and so they, they could say, this is a great idea and this is not, um, but they would also take that into consideration um, and review the work that the commission has done. Okay, thank you. So yeah, going back, um, it'd be great if we can add some things. Um, I would think that the the council, if they didn't like certain areas, they can, you know, scratch that off veto, veto parts of it, come back with the revision. Um, but, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, is best. Yeah, I just, my, I just mm -hmm. want to, I, I just want to make sure that we, if we're going to propose a change that should kind of close, um, it sort of um, for transparency and all that, that we, um, that we put enough in there to make it effective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I and I definitely hear you. Um, I being a part of the ad hoc group and the amount of analysis that was done to compare what mm -hmm. we're looking at with um, many other cities and the state and looking at the current um, uh, work. I think that this is a really good recommendation. Uh, is there always something <laughs> that could change with it? For sure. Um, but this has been in the works for years, actually, <laughs> because they brought this up during COVID. And so I think that my um, recommendation is that we move forward with a really good work product um, mm -hmm. and that we hope that you know, law and ledge and the council look at that. And we should always, we should look at it again in a year um, and consider other changes to it and how we might update it. So I, I don't think that this is like a, we, we should really be looking at this stuff regularly anyway. Okay. Because policy, you know, to me, policy is policy under recommendation of the letter. Yeah. If we are too straight or too stringent, it may get counter effect. So uh, I agree with uh, Commissioner Gomez. And I encourage the commission to move this forward today. Okay. Anything else? Okay. As I understand it, we have to, I don't know if we have to make two separate things. We have to receive and file um, the activities of the so, um, ad hoc committee and then we have to pass a motion so chair one motion is appropriate for the whole recommendation okay all right 
So would you like to make a motion to receive and file the committee report and forward the recommendations to the city council? Um, I, to refer the recommendations to the law and legislation committee for review, um, just to be clear about what we're asking. And then, mm -hmm. yeah, then, then we would uh, request the law and ledge committee to bring the draft ordinance for council to consider and adopt. Okay, but so that's your motion. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have a second? I'll second. Okay. Um, any more discussion? I think we've already discussed. Um, Madam Clerk, would you call the roll? Thank you, Commissioner Adams. Yes. Commissioner Gomez. Yes. Commissioner Velasquez. Yes. Vice Chair Ng. Yes. And Chair Underwood. Yes. Okay. So we're done with that. Um, and now we go to item five, which is the independent evaluators, no cause report. Um, this is on a complaint that was filed and that he was directed to investigate. Um, so I guess I'll turn it over to you, Mr. Miller, to get us Thank caught you, Chair Underwood. Good evening, everybody. I must say, you may. I'm looking forward to meeting you all in person. We've never actually been in the same room at the same time, but for now, we'll just uh, I'll keep zooming. Um, the complaint you have before you, uh, the report, I should say, on the complaint before you, focuses on state conflict of interest laws in the Political Reform Act, which are incorporated by reference into the municipal code within this commission's jurisdiction. Uh, the complaint suggests that City Council Member Valenzuela had an impermissible conflict of interest between her public duties as a council member and her private job as a lobbyist, apropos of your discussion just now, mm -hmm. um, when she acted as a council member, both by publishing tweets on environmental issues and by voting to adopt a city ordinance banning natural gas appliances in the city. Um, as always, under the commission's procedures, my first task is to assume that all the facts in the complaint are true and ask, even if they are true, would they amount to a violation of the municipal code? And only if the answer to that question is yes, am I to proceed to conduct an investigation to determine what the facts actually are. Uh, in this situation, for a number of reasons, um, I concluded that the answer to that key preliminary threshold question was no, and so we didn't conduct an investigation and instead prepared the report that's before you this evening. Um, the, the city of Sacramento allows its council members to have outside jobs. It's a part-time part council, and there may at times be tensions between what's good for the city and what's good for a private employer of a council member. But the commission enforces, this commission enforces the specific rules in the municipal code, and those specific rules um, are, are those that incorporate the Political Reform Act conflict of interest rules. And those rules stand for the proposition uh, that a public official, like a council member, is prohibited from, and now I will quote, 
making, participating, or influencing any governmental decision that has a foreseeable, material, financial effect on their economic interests. The Political Reform Act um, conflict of interest rules are interpreted by and enforced primarily by the Fair Political Practices Commission, the FPPC, uh, under a series of super technical regulations. These regulations, they, they try to reach a result dictated by a common sense understanding of shared ethical values, but they require a very rule-bound technical analysis, and so that's the analysis that you see in my report. Um, as a starting place, let's talk about tweets. Um, our report concludes that we don't think that tweeting rises to the level of a governmental decision that would implicate the Political Reform Act. Uh, I don't think the FPPC or a court has ever stated that explicitly, um, but I still think it's a common sense conclusion and they've never stated anything to the contrary. And even if it's conceivable that under some circumstances a tweet could be part of a governmental decision-making process, um, don't think that's the case with the tweets identified in the complaint. They are focused on public outreach, encouraging people to come to meetings and such, and, and not on a governmental decision itself. And so, therefore, because those tweets are not part of a governmental decision-making process, uh, we don't think there can be a Political Reform Act conflict, conflict of interest, and accordingly, we didn't investigate that part of the allegation. However, the complaint also alleges a, client, a, a conflict of interest under the Political Reform Act arising from Councilmember Valenzuela's vote to pass an ordinance that bans natural gas appliances in the city. Um, you know, unlike tweeting, voting on an ordinance is clearly making a governmental decision. So, of course, that action implicates the Political Reform Act conflict of interest rule. Um, and at the risk of repeating myself, I'm probably going to say this phrase a couple of times this evening, but under the Political Reform Act, the key question is whether that decision to enact an ordinance had a foreseeable material financial effect on Councilmember Valenzuela's economic interests. Can't emphasize it enough. The, the PRA focus, Political Reform Act focuses on economic interests, not on more conceptual issues of divided loyalties in situations that don't have that economic component. There may be other, there are other doctrines of law dealing with those kinds of sort of gut sense conflicts, but those are not part of the municipal code within the public, or the Political Reform Act and are not within this commission's jurisdiction. So not only does this commission under the PRA focus on economic interest, but it's not just enough that there be a general sense of an economic interest. It must be a foreseeable material financial effect on the public official's economic interest. Um, and the Fair Political Practices Commission, the FPPC, I know you're aware of, um, they have a number of regulations that provide guidance and a multi-step process for determining determining whether an economic interest is both foreseeable and material. And the key part of that analytic process, I didn't bore you in the complaint with all the various steps, but the key step of that analysis is what the FPPC calls the nexus test. And under the nexus test, the question is whether a decision will, quote, achieve, defeat, aid, or hinder 
a purpose or goal of a private entity that is a source of income for a public official, and the public official receives or is promised income for achieving that purpose or goal. Note again the focus on income and economic impact. And the idea underlying that nexus test is that for a conflict of interest to implicate the Political Reform Act, there must be a close connection, a nexus, between the duties a public official owes to a source of their income and the duties the public official owes to that, their public agency. And our report goes into that analysis in some detail and uh, comes up with a number of reasons based on FPPC advice and guidance why we don't think the facts in the complaint suggest a nexus that at least the FPPC would take notice of in interpreting its rules. So first, the FPPC usually applies the nexus test where there is the kind of a direct economic benefit that arises when a public official is also a high-level employee of a private firm. The theory here is that what's good for the firm will mean an economic be benefit to some high-level employee. Um, here, Councilmember Valenzuela is, uh, under the complaint, allegedly a consultant lobbyist to a number of firms, but not financially interested in those firms, in those entities, in, in the way she might be if she were a C-suite employee of any of them. Um, second, the FPPC usually applies its nexus test where there's a close connection between the governmental decision and the economic benefit or even the policy goals of the private entity. And here the complaint states that the, the private entities who engage council member Valenzuela to lobby for them do so to lobby at the state level, not the city level. There's no allegation in the complaint that council member Valenzuela received any benefit, economic benefit, from voting on a city ordinance or that her work as a state lobbyist has an economic connection to the local city ordinance at issue. Um, and, and we could find no examples of the FPPC applying the nexus test to facts at all like those in the complaint. And so, therefore, even assuming that the facts of the complaint are all true, we don't think they add up to a reasonably foreseeable material financial impact that would create an impermissible conflict of interest under the Political Reform Act and therefore the Municipal Code. So we didn't investigate any further and instead filed the report you see before you. Um, just in closing, I just want to mention um, I, I'm super cognizant that in the past I've made these, filed these no-cause reports and the Commission in its uh, wisdom has determined to go forward and investigate further. And I, I'm super comfortable in the conclusion I just described and in my recommendation that you should dismiss the complaint and take no further action. But I did just want to mention that if you direct further investigation, um, you know, the, 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 the facts that I would gather, I would apply to the Political Reform Act using my best sense of how the FPPC would apply those facts to its rules because this is not a case where the municipal code is directly implicated. It's all a state law issue. And so therefore you may decide it might be more efficient if you wanna conduct an investigation to refer this to the FPPC as allowed in your procedures or, or even ask the FPPC for an advisory opinion based on the facts in the complaint. Um, and so I presented that in, your, in my report as, as an alternative. Um, I think I've spoken enough. I hope that summarizes my report. It's a little bit of a tricky 
path, logical pathway, and so I thought I'd take a few extra minutes to present it to you in this manner, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Okay, let me first ask um, Madam Clerk if there are any members of the public who wish to speak on this item. Chair, I have no hands raised to make comments on this item. Okay. Um, so now we're open for commissioner questions, if any, or comments. Commissioner. Uh, or, uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, this, this question is directly to uh, Stephen. And um, based on what you've said, is, is your recommendation, you know, for the city council, if they have any slight indication of perce being perceived as a conflict of interest, that they, they should recuse themselves for even voting? I mean, in the back of, I, I understand in the back of everybody's mind is like, well, you know, I, I, you know, I'm okay. But what's the, you know, I mean, in the real circumstances, you know, should, should they or should they not? Because there's so many issues, you know, issues in the city or come forth before the city council members has a lot to do with, you know, like their profession. So um, if I understand your question, I'm, I'm not sure I would presume to tell the council members what they should do, but yeah. you know, all council members receive ethics training required by state yeah. law. They also have access to your super city attorney who can provide them with guidance. The mm -hmm. FPPC can provide advisory opinions to council members who feel that they would like such an opinion through the city attorney. And you know, mm -hmm. everybody has their own ethical compass that they follow that in some cases goes beyond what the rules are. In some cases, they just follow the rules. Um, so I'm not sure if I'm really answering your question, but I agree with you that all public officials, including yourselves, should always be aware of the ethical constraints that, that uh, arise in, in your day-to-day -day life and you're carrying out of your public duties and you need to pay attention to them under state law. Right. I think that's what I wanted to hear because that's what, you know, I mean, we as a official <laughs> and speaking on, on behalf of the city, yes, we all should be aware. That's, that's just me. Commissioner Adams. I have a few comments. I'll start with one that is, I would say, more of a comment to the uh, city clerk um, regarding the form and, you know, just looking at the form and some of the information that was pre uh, presented, it looked like the initial complaint, the form did not allow for the full complaint to be viewed. So just if there's something that can be done so that the forms can expand, if there will be information that is beyond. I mean, I do appreciate that, you know, the, the um, complainant um, did respond with the information to provide it. But if there's just something that is a little bit more intuitive that can be um, changed on the form so that that follow up is not necessary and that the person can provide the full information um, at, at, on the initial form. My second comment is with regards to sort of the comment that uh, the independent evaluator made with regards to tweeting. Um, and while, you know, I, I, I know that tweets are 
have evolved since you know the the uh, Twitter has has come around. Um, there has been recent history with different political figures using Twitter um, to tweet information that does actually go into how they will be voting, and in turn has a lot of people, a lot of members of the public now are looking at tweets and taking that um, into consideration about governmental decision making. So I, I would say I would, you know, I see sort of that comment about the tweets a little bit differently. And again, this is all how sort of social media is evolving. And I, I think that it is, um, it's in our best interest to understand, regardless of how a platform such as Twitter or other type of social media platforms despite how they have been made, how the public use them is, I, I think, something that we should uh, take a, a serious look at. Um, my other thought is, and I'm trying, you know, sitting here thinking how to articulate this. So, you know, the question on whether or not it was appropriate for the council member to vote, um, for me, I would want more information of if the vote was a negative vote, would it still impact the council member's financial benefit? So if the person, you know, if the council member would have voted contrary to um, to how she did vote, would she lose clients in the future? And if so, would that sort of change the change how her position with the city is sort of morphed into her position lobbying the state. And I would say based on the facts that you presented, um, evaluator, I'm not able to see it if there was a contrary uh, vote. So for me, I, I would want more information, you know, not necessarily looking at the vote that, you know, as she voted, because obviously, you know, with, with what you said, there is that connection of, well, no, she voted, you know, she voted favorably, and it's not impacting the state. But if she would have voted negatively and being a public figure, it would have trickled up into her lobbying to the state, and that could impact her financial benefit. So for me, I would want more information for that. I do appreciate the nuance that you, you mentioned of, um, there's not there wasn't facts available to compare that type of um, analysis to this. So I would personally want to either have a have that investigated further or, as you mentioned, uh, approach the FPPC to have them provide an advisory opinion on this case. There's just not enough information, I would say, for me to feel comfortable making a decision at this point. Well, if I can jump in, and I know Commissioner Velasquez, you have your hand up, but what she voted on was to, for a ban on natural gas appliances in the city. And I'm trying to figure out how that could possibly benefit her financially, unless she, I mean, if she voted to allow natural gas appliances and she worked for a company that created natural gas appliances, then there is an obvious connection. But she wasn't even working for any of these companies. She was lobbying for them. I assume mm -hmm. on a on a con on a salary during And I will say oh. I understand that. For yeah. me, is if if you are in a public capacity and you vote one way that may negatively impact people you are lobbying for they may not want to work with you. So, uh, you know, I understand what the vote was. I understand her connection to the firms. For me, it's 
there are still impacts regardless of her vote. So if there are going to be impacts to her financially, that's, I would want more information on what those impacts are regardless of the nature of her vote, whether it would be something that would support their greater interest, not support the greater interest, still making a public vote and that impacting sort of her status of a lobbyist, even on the state level, it comes back to her her official capacity on the on the local level. Um, I'm not sure if I, trying to read facial expressions. I'm not sure if that makes sense. But for me, there is still your you know the person's name and the reputation is still attached to it. So there is going to be some sway. I would just want more information about what that sway would be and whether or not um, it would have been more appropriate for her to have recused herself because of that sway even if it was not, I would say directly, you know, there's still that indirect impact. And that is what I am interested in, in knowing more about. Okay, Commissioner Velasquez. Oh, wait, Commission, um, Mr. Miller, did you want to respond specifically to Commissioner Adams? I did, but I, I don't need to, uh, if you would like to call on Commissioner Vasquez, I of course don't want to, to step on those toes, but I did have a response to Commissioner Adams. Well, Commissioner Velasquez, do you want to jump in now or do you want to hear what Mr. Miller has to say first? Yeah, fine, I'll jump in now. I don't really have any questions. It's just a comment. Um, it sounds like, um, and coming from a civil service employee, um, there are documents that we signed that, um, that we um, be aware of our representation as a civil service employee and decisions that we make um, at work and also in our personal lives and how that can be perceived. I know we've talked about this sort of thing before where um, if you're in some type of political spotlight, you need to be very careful with your choices. Um, I think that's mostly what this is um, and that council member Valenzuela still um, has the right to her opinion I don't see anything um, where this was a immediate foreseeable impact on her financial economic future. Um, so that that's just my opinion on this. I really don't have any questions. Okay, Mr. Miller. Sure, so um, Commissioner Adams, I, I appreciate your comments. I think it's a good indication of what I said is that everybody has their own sort of way of of guiding their ethical compass that guides them through this. And I certainly I appreciate your point of view. I, I think the way the FPPC might react to your comment is that the question of whether acting to vote yes or no would impact the uh, entity's desire to engage her in the future has to do with whether the financial impact is reasonably foreseeable. And the nexus test has to do with assuming that it's reasonable foreseeable, is the financial impact material? And um, perhaps should have gone into more detail in my report, but we just sort of assumed for the sake of argument, even if there were a reasonably foreseeable financial impact, the, the question under the nexus test is whether that impact would be material or not. So that's my only response to you is, is that I think you're as I understood your comment, you're focusing on the foreseeability part of the FPPC's test, and the nexus test is the materiality issue. That's my comment. Okay. Madam Clerk, you've got your hand up. 
Thank you. Commissioner Adams also directed a question towards me, and the website has been updated, so there is no character limit on the complaint form. Thank you, Clerk. Okay, Commissioner Gomez. Uh, I guess I didn't raise my hand because I didn't, felt like I didn't have an enormous amount to say, but uh, following Commissioner Velasquez's comments, I kind of, I agree with Commissioner Velasquez in that um, I, I guess I, I agree with the Stephen Miller's recommendations on the evaluation um, and uh, following kind of like that follow-up comment on, on the Nexus piece. Um, I think that you can like, you can, I don't know. I just feel like you can always stretch to make connections. Like if you're, most of the council members are homeowners. So do they not vote on anything that has to do with land in the city of Sacramento? Um, maybe that's not a good example, but I, I do feel like you can like always point up towards um, folks having some level of connection to a lot of the uh, work that the city council is moving forward. Um, and I just didn't feel like the connection here was um, following the guidance that was outlined. That's all. Commissioner Adams. Yeah, uh, the, this is in response to um, independent, independent evaluator. I do appreciate, you know, keeping um, the reports, I would say brief and to the point um, to the items that um, I would say is, are, are most relevant to your conclusions. You did mention that you didn't necessarily go into details. I will say, you know, I work in policy. I'm, you know, I'm a big legal nerd. I like the details. And for me, without having the details there, I'm not able to see the whole story. So, you know, I would say maybe for future reports, please go into detail. I think those details are important, even if they will aid into drawing the same conclusion, but those details are important. And more importantly, in under the sort of belief in keeping this as open and transparent, you know, particularly to, you know, commissioners, other people, other members of the public, having that detail, I think is very practical. Um, so just, you know, this is not necessarily a comment on um, this, but, you know, maybe in the future reports, please be as detailed as possible. Great. That's helpful direction. Thank you. Okay. Anything else? Um, Yes, Commissioner Velasquez. I don't know if I can if, if I can ask, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, I'm curious if Commissioner Ng has any uh, anything to add, just because um, I appreciate I can appreciate when you need more information and you're not comfortable with making a decision. So I would be in support of um, Commissioner Adams if she felt like. Um, you needed more information, I would be totally fine with um, moving forward with that. Um, even given the stance that I'm in, I feel like, you know, if, if you need more information, then, then you need more information. I think whatever you need to make mm -hmm. your decision. So I'm kind of curious what um, Commissioner Ng, how she feels. You know, personal, and thanks for asking. Personally, you know, I mean, the only only questions I have is 
when the person is due to voting and as a public official is even, you know, in our in our capacity in boards and commissions, even in my other, you know, outside organization, we all understand if that's the slightest, slightest conflict of interest, we will recuse ourselves from that. But of course, there's always moment there's, there's, that, that you also rely on your colleagues, you know, and, um, uh, uh, or, or the, you know, there's legal counsel to be there. So I know we cannot talk to each other, but, but as uh, Chair Underwood said, too, we all, we all are, you know, individuals, we all understand, we should all understand this. We went through, we went through the training, but this is just a slight theory to me, to me personally, it's just a, just maybe just a slip up. <laughs> so it all happened. But I, I honestly, I don't see any uh, financial uh, gain, you know, from just approving this or to even cast a vote. I don't see that. So I'm okay with it. Yeah, I mean, I don't see how voting to ban natural gas appliances in the city. I mean, I've been trying to think how that could possibly have a material financial impact on her. Yeah. And I just do not. I, I Maybe I don't have a, enough of an imagination, but I cannot see how that could, but um, so I don't think this was a slip up. I think um, she, you know, probably thought about, or who knows what she thought, but one could give it serious thought and come to the conclusion that it's not, there's no conflict of interest. Yeah. And that may be what she did. Yes. So, um, point chair and and it's true because we all you know at the very moment you know that's a split decision whether we want to or we don't sometimes it's it's just that moment instead of saying I recuse myself because you don't see it but then afterwards you see it you know it happened but I think what what I well at least what I'm saying is that it's not an I don't I don't see it, so yeah. I, I don't know. I'm maybe you know I I don't speak for Councilmember Valenzuela, but um, yeah. So what we need to do is first of all we need to make a motion to receive the independent evaluators report, and that could just be a separate motion, or we could combine it with the other, and then the second thing would be either a motion to adopt his report and dismiss the complaint or to refer it to the FPPC or the third thing he suggests in a footnote is that the city attorney could seek written advice from the FPPC as to the possible existence of a prohibited conflict. So I suppose we could refer it to the city attorney to talk to the FPPC. Or we could just refer the complaint to the FPPC if we don't want to dismiss the complaint. 
and you know follow his recommendations. So, Chair, I do have one member of the public with their hand raised to make public comments. Oh. Okay. Would you like to take that now? Sure. Um, so it's a phone number, last four digits, 9211, if you'll unmute. Yes, this is Lambert Davis of To the Bay and Back Cheesecakes, and I'm, I'm trying to, to understand when I hear conflict of interest, um, something that I've been studying for a while, based upon what I'm hearing tonight, there should be a conflict of interest of any city official that is on a PBID board of directors. Uh, as a person who's supported by the millennials, I have a tremendous millennial following all over the city, and they brought that to my attention, that the PBID, the PBIDs in Sacramento have city officials, uh, most of them are from the, the city manager's office, including the city manager, are members of the board of directors of the PBID. Now, if that's not a conflict of interest from what I just heard, I'd like to hear the person who called herself a uh, political nerd or whatever that term was, I'd like to find out why that's not a conflict of interest when you're talking about something pertaining to city councilwoman Valenzuela. You don't have to answer it if you can't answer it, but uh, that was brought to my attention recently. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Chair, I have no more speakers. Okay. Um, to the to the member of the public, you used a term that sounded to me like PBID. Public uh, Business Information District. <laughs> I was completely at a loss as to what that <laughs> So now I'm confused about what his point was. But I don't think it related to this topic. I mean, it's true. I think many council members sit on PBIDs, but I don't, I generally, that relates to conflicts of interest. I think they have to, though. I think they're assigned to, Mindy would be able to tell us. Yeah. I don't know how that ties back to this case specifically. Yeah, the comments were not related to the item at hand. Okay. All right, so we're back to figuring out um, what we're, what our vote is going to be. I mean, well, we uh, Madam Chair, so if is if you're ready to vote, I I'll make the motion to um, you know, for for. Recommendation one is to receive Mr. Miller's report, and that's it. You know, if we don't see any more, if we don't need more discussion, I just make a motion to receive uh, Mr. Miller's no-cost report. So are you, all, are you making a motion to adopt it also? Yes. To or adopt to it and to receive and adopt the report. Okay. I second that. Okay. Madam Clerk. Thank you, Chair. And I, I will reiterate that motion. So the motion was to receive the independent evaluator's no cause report 
and adopting the evaluator's no-cause report and the findings therein and dismissing the complaint and closing the file in this matter without further action. Is that accurate? Correct. Thank you. Commissioner Adams? No. Commissioner Gomez? Yes. Commissioner Velasquez? Yes. Vice Chair Ng? Yes. And Chair Underwood? Yes. Uh, the motion passes. Okay. So, um, thank you, everybody. And thank you, Mr. Miller, for uh, spending all this time with us. It's a pleasure. I, I will sign off unless you'd like me to stay with you for the rest of your meeting. No, I, I think if you want to leave, you can leave. Okay. Good night, everybody. Good night. Okay. So um, I think all that's left now on the agenda is commission comments, ideas, and questions. Is that right? Where's my agenda go? I have so many papers on my desk. Yes. <laughs> Commission, commissioner comments, ideas, and questions. Commissioner um, Well, I just said the totally wrong acronym, so I just want to restate it. <laughs> I don't know what I was saying. I made it up. It's Property Business Improvement District is PBIT. I don't know what I was saying. Uh, so that, that is what PBIT stands for. Doesn't matter. It sounded good. Said it. Yeah, I just said something really bad. That started with PBID a couple seconds ago. You, you could have said peanut butter and jelly, and I would have been like, Commissioner Adams. I have a question. Um, maybe Meta, uh, Madam Clerk can help. Um, the independent evaluator, I believe, was looking into the Ethics Commission this year, and I'm just curious if we know when their report is finished or um, it, when. It will be finished if it if they would do a presentation to our commission on the findings. Um, so last I talked to, to to them, it was they were not complete with the report, and they figured um, they're expecting it to be done spring of next year. Thank you. That now who was that? That that wasn't the same independent evaluator. I remember we were interviewed. The independent auditor. So it's oh, a separate. And I may have said independent evaluator. She's on top of my head, but the independent uh, auditor. Okay. Yeah, I was confused because you said evaluator, and I thought Stephen Miller is not auditing us. <laughs> okay, Commissioner Velasquez. So now I have a question on what that is. I don't. Is this something that happened before May? Yes. I believe they started the evaluation last year, maybe. Evaluation mm -hmm. on whether we're useful. What what are they evaluating? Uh, I do not want to try to speak on behalf of the auditor's <laughs> office, so I will defer to to the clerk if she has any information. Um, so I'd be happy to follow up with you um, offline. Um, but uh, the auditor's office. So the auditor, the city auditor, is an independent charter office of the city, and they can. Um, they have an annual work plan where they do audits on different departments, different projects, different programs, and this was just something that was on their work plan. Okay. Commissioner Gomez. Um, I, I don't know. I think the member of the public is still here, but 
uh, just want to note that if they want to make, like if they want to look into what they were noting as an ethics complaint, our website hopefully should be really clear on how to do that. Didn't mean to dismiss what you brought up. Um, it just wasn't really relating to necessarily what we had on the agenda, but uh, welcome you viewing uh, our like ethics, what we cover as a part of the ethics commission. And if, if you have concerns about something that um, is going on. And Commissioner, I, I, I'd I be happy to know more. I want to know more about T bids because I've never heard <laughs> before. <laughs> Did somebody else start to say something? I'm sorry if I cut you off. Okay, so do we, any more comments, ideas, questions? All right, the last item is public comments, matters not on the agenda. And I see that a written comment has been submitted. Oh, the, the telephone has his hand up. That's correct. I have one, one member of the public that would like to speak on this item. Yes, this is uh, Lambert again. And I'm studying uh, city council as though I'm pursuing a degree. And the reason I'm doing that is because I'm a native of Sacramento. My, my parents moved here in 1946. And so in their honor, I'm studying city council. Now, I, I wasn't aware of P-BIDs until I relocated back to Sacramento. Uh, P-BID is a very serious operation in every district. They have one in District 2, and that's where my roots are, uh, Del Paso Heights, actually. I know the difference. And it's, it, to me, it's an ethical conflict to have members of the city and I'm not sure about the city council members are part of a P-bid, but I know there's members of the city of, of the city manager's office that are members. I think that's a tremendous ethical violation because if you're not benefiting from a P-bid, and Del Paso Heights does not, nor Sacramento does, then those officials that are on that board of directors can guide monies to that P-bid and people and organizations in parts of D2 would not benefit. District 2 has 23 communities. I've never heard of that, which means it's tremendously gerrymandered. And so, of course, I'm going to study the ethics of that, and I'm glad that I was able to participate because I'm a tremendous fan of the city uh, clerk, because I think she's very. Thank you for uh, your comments. Your confident. time is complete. Will you make your final comment, please? Yes, I will be studying the ethics of PBIT. Thank you for your comments. And, Chair, if I may, I would be happy to follow up with Mr. Davis offline regarding the Ethics Commission. That would be great. And if he has, if he later wants to bring something to our commission, you know, that would be fine. We can get him agendized. All right. 
The last item is public comments matters not on the agenda. And there is this written comment that has been submitted by a John Doe, presumably the same John Doe who submitted the other comment. It says, you've probably all seen it. It says, I would suggest that you examine the clerk's practices regarding this process a bit more regularly. So I'm not even sure what John Doe means by that, but there it is. I, maybe it relates back to his earlier comment about how his, assuming it's the same John Doe, there could be more than one John Doe, um, his complaint that the lot, that his item was not on the complaint log. Anyway, I don't know that there's anything we can do with respect to this comment because it's a vague comment. He hasn't, he submitted it anonymously and we don't even know what practices he wants us to examine. Does anybody have any thoughts? And I think your comments are good because if they're listening, then they know to maybe uh, circle back and get a little bit more specific if they want uh, any follow-up around any of those areas. Okay, and Mindy, is there anybody, any members of the public who are here and wishing to speak on matters not on the agenda? Uh, we only had Mr. Davis that, to speak on oh. matters not on the agenda. Okay. So I think this concludes today's agenda. Thank you everyone for your participation. I'll give you one more chance to make comments if anybody has any. Yes, Commissioner Ng. Yes, well, thank you, Chair. Mm -hmm. You know, based on you know what we have talked about in the past years and today's conversation, I think is critical for us to let the public know of our existence. We've been saying this for, I mean, month after month, year after year, and now we have, I, I, I'm happy that we're generating more interest. Okay. So as more people know, the, the more work, it's not more work, the, 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 I mean, we can do better work as a commission to help the community. So, you know, again, I don't know how we can pass the information out and I know the city clerk, the office is doing it. So maybe we can have uh, the city clerk, you know, give us an update about, um, about this information sharing outside of this commission. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we had a public outreach committee, ad hoc committee for a while, and then it was disbanded because the city clerk said that her office was sort of taking over that function. But we do need some kind of public outreach. I agree with you, Vice Chair Ng, so that more people know that we even exist. I mean, we've been in existence for, what, five years now? Mm -hmm something like that. And most people still don't even know we exist. 
Okay. Um, anybody else? No. All right. This concludes the agenda. It's 6.51 p.m. and I'm adjourning the meeting. Thank you.